You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. I need you to use your imaginations this morning. Take just a moment, doesn't take long, just a moment, and imagine that this church has sent you out to plant a church. I know it may seem a little bit far-fetched for some of us, but again, you're invited to use your imagination. It's not that far-fetched. Imagine with me that this church has commissioned you to go plant a church. And then, in light of that reflection, ask yourself a question. And here it is. What do I do first? You may have already asked yourself that question, if you're imagining the scenario. And other questions may have come through your mind, because after all, you're committed to the principle of first things first, but you need to figure out what the first things are before you can do them first, don't you? So what are the first things when it comes to new churches? What are the first things when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, the expansion of the kingdom? What do we do first? What comes to mind? Location, perhaps? Maybe you need temporary space before you move into permanent space down the road. Maybe your first question is, I need a core group of leaders to kind of help brainstorm this thing and pray and do some reflecting and and discerning God's purposes for us. Maybe your first thought was, I need kind of a core group of church people, you know, 30 people, maybe 40, who will be committed to do this with me so so that you know, I don't show up all by myself on Sunday morning, and, and we need some critical mass, and, and maybe, it, maybe that's what I need. Maybe I need, uh, first I need some, some, just a team of people to help out. Maybe I need some funding. <laughs> After all, how are we going to pay for this and, and, and fund this ministry? What would you do first? In Acts chapter 2, we get the first church, Literally. It hasn't been around before. The Holy Spirit has come, and for the first time, God dwells within His people across the board. In the past, the Holy Spirit would fall on certain persons from time to time. If you read through the Old Testament, you'd find the Spirit falling upon a prophet. This is the first time the Spirit falls indiscriminately. And the church is born. The Spirit at this moment gives birth to the church of God in Christ. And the apostles go to work. What's interesting to me is that they don't ask about any of the things that were on our list just a minute ago. The kind of common things that come up when people start talking about new churches, funding, space, people. The apostles don't pause to consider those things. They don't start thinking about how they're going to fund the mission. They don't start looking for prime real estate locations. And if they're 
If we're reading this text with this principle of first things first, we need to ask the question, what do we see? What do they do? And the answer is quite simple, isn't it? They start talking about Jesus. First things first, talk about Jesus. His death, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. And so if we're taking Acts chapter 2 as a whole... Last week, grateful to to Allie for leading the congregation through the coming of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. The beginning of Acts chapter 2, we've got the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then at the second half of Acts chapter 2, we're not quite to the end of it, but this big chunk in the middle, you've got this sermon that Peter preaches after the Spirit has come, and it's pretty clear that Luke, who wrote it, is inviting us to consider the relationship between the two the spirit has come and the first thing that happens is peter starts preaching about jesus spirit comes the spirit empowers the church begins to preach what's the bottom line the spirit empowers so the church can proclaim first things first that's it yeah later on they're going to talk about how we identify and recruit leaders when we get to Acts chapter 6. That's going to come up. The question of where the church will meet comes up in the New Testament. We find there are benefactors who open their homes or maybe provide uh, for Christians to rent space in a local area. Those kinds of questions come up, but they don't come up first. We're reading Acts with this first things first lens, this first things first principle. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit empowers so the church can proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment as we think about that to remember where we are in the story. Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with his disciples for a few weeks. Just before he ascends to heaven, He tells them, you're going to be my witnesses. And again, notice how they embrace that vocation at the end of this sermon. We are witnesses of his resurrection. They get it, finally. This may be the first thing the disciples get in the New Testament, but they're finally starting to get things. So Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. This is a global project. They still don't quite get that. Because they're surprised when it breaks outside their borders. But nevertheless, that's what he tells them. You're going to be my witnesses. And then he ascends to heaven. He's exalted. And notice what a prominent place in Peter's sermon the exaltation of Jesus takes. Just as a bit of a footnote, kind of side note here. If you think back through all the sermons you've heard in your life, how frequently do you hear about the ascension and exaltation of Jesus? Some might say it's one of the most neglected doctrines in the entire church. When Peter preaches the first sermon, first things first, it's all driving at the ascension. None of this works if Jesus isn't on the throne of heaven. The mission has no basis. It has no authority if Jesus is not on the throne of heaven. And so the resurrection and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ are crucial, essential 
non-negotiable aspects of the church's proclamation. A lot of times, we act like the gospel is solely about the events on Good Friday. Jesus died for you, repent, get forgiven. All that's true, but it's not enough. Not if you let acts shape the way you talk about Jesus. He talks about the death of Jesus in the first half of the sermon, and then he slides into the resurrection and the exaltation and the mission and the declaration that the Lord Jesus Christ is Messiah and Lord. So Jesus has ascended, and he says you've got to wait a little while. Doesn't tell him how long, but the gift is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll empower you. You will receive power. And so Luke is inviting us to ask the question, all right, so what kind of power do they receive when the Spirit actually shows up? What does it mean for the church to empower? So as we're, as we're reading through the first few paragraphs of Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit actually shows up, and they're in that room, and it, things kind of start, windows start shaking. I bet most of us, if we're in our houses and the windows start shaking, we go find that safe space inside with no windows and no doors. This is a little bit different, isn't it? We probably know kind of what they felt like, but the outcome was a little bit different. You know, nobody's got storm trackers on their cell phones in their, in their safe spaces here. But the windows are shaking. The, the building, it, feels, it just feels like the wind is rushing through it. And then there's fire, little tongues of fire. And if we've read through the Old Testament, we know good and well that when we see fire, it's a symbol of whose presence? God's presence. All the way through, whether it's the burning bush or Mount Sinai. When there's fire, it's a sign, a symbol of the presence of God. And so, I remember when I was a kid, we don't do flannel graphs anymore. We should try to find a flannel graph, because if you're, like, you just hadn't been in children's ministry without a flannel graph, amen? I got a few amens there. I remember, I just have this distinct picture. There's like, I'm in third grade, and there's the flannel board, and there's like these little pictures of disciples, and then you have the little tongues of fire. Did you have that one? Like the tongues of fire, and you put it on their head on the flannel board. And then they fall off because it's old and it's worn out flannel. But they did, it was there. And that's, a, that's the image I have. I'm sure it was nothing like the flannel board. But imagine what that must have been like. To be there in the moment when all of the things that the Old Testament was anticipating. And Peter's going to go there. He's going to say, you should have known this was coming. Because the prophets told you about it. And the fire of God's presence has come, and he is not merely with his people, he is now within his people. And this is new. It hasn't happened this way before. And this is where we are in the story. That God has come not merely to be with his people, but to be within his people. And Luke wants us to be asking, what's the power? What kind of power? You will receive power, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes. Well, the Spirit has come. What's the power? What does that look like? One of the ways the Spirit empowers the church immediately is by overcoming language barriers. And that sets up for what Peter's about to say, isn't it? Like the apostles are speaking their native dialect. But the people from other places are hearing it in their own language because 
Language barriers, if you haven't noticed, are a massive difficulty in negotiating for us getting the gospel out. My friends who are missionaries spend serious time in language school before they go. Luke wants us to know when the Spirit comes, the barriers to the advancement of the kingdom of God do not pose ultimate. They're not an ultimate problem. And so immediately we get this sign that God is doing something new. And if the crucial thing is overcoming language barriers, then we would expect some language to be spoken. And that's why Peter preaches, isn't it? And so at the very beginning, if we hold these two things side by side, the Spirit shows up and the apostles are empowered. What are they empowered to do? They are empowered to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. First things first, gospel proclamation. If that's not who we are, if that's not what we do, just go take the words church down off the sign. If there's a building out there and it's got church out front on the sign, but the gospel isn't proclaimed inside from the pulpit, the sign is a lie. It's not true. It's misrepresenting things. Because churches, churches preach Jesus. Churches proclaim the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ's life, death, resurrection, exaltation, and commission to take the world for His kingdom. And if that's not the priority, it's not a church. First things first. The Spirit empowers the people of God to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at this sermon. We've looked at the link, how the Spirit shows up to enable the church to proclaim, and we've hinted around at the proclamation, but let's, let's look carefully at what's going on in the proclamation of the gospel. <laughs> First of all, Peter's got to kind of answer the objections. I don't know if you've ever been accused of being drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, but it's not a compliment, just so you know. It's not a compliment. <clears throat> so Peter says, hey, it's 9 in the morning. I get it. You're here. Things are getting a little crazy, and this party's getting a little out of hand. You're hearing non, you know, people who don't speak your language speak your language, and there's tongues of fire, and there's wind, and like it's getting a little wild. I know that, but it's not a crazy frat party. That's not what's happening here. It's actually what the prophet Joel was talking about way back. And then he quotes Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares. This is Acts 17, quoting Joel 2, 28 through 32. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Let's talk more about that. First thing I want you to notice is those first four words. Of verse 17. If you don't have your Bibles open, you won't be able to notice the first four words of verse 17, which is a good reason to keep your Bibles open for the duration of our time reflecting on the text. What are those first words in verse 17? In the last days. In the last days is where we are. In the last days it will be. Depending on your translation, you may have the words may be in a different order. In mine, it's in the last days. Now you hear a lot about the last days, don't you? And most people, or a lot of people, maybe I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people think the last days are when? 
later. The problem with that is Acts 2, right? Peter's doing this 2,000 years ago, and he says Joel was talking about what's happening 2,000 years ago, and he says what Joel was talking about was what? The last days. And so according to Peter, the last days aren't something that's coming later for us. They started 2,000 years ago. That doesn't mean they're over. They're still going on. And they'll keep going on until Jesus comes back. But the point is, every time a new movie comes out or a new book series or somebody does an interview or somebody starts predicting things, every, you know, we're getting about, it's about time for somebody to predict the second coming of Jesus, isn't it? It's been a couple of years. Every few years, somebody's got to predict it, right? Last days, and then people quit their jobs and go up on top of buildings and camp out in fields, and it's like, we're waiting for the second coming, and he never shows up. Because I guess they forgot to read the part about not predicting it in the Bible. And also the part where Peter says the last days start on the day of Pentecost. In the Bible, last days is not a phrase for the seven years prior to the return of Jesus. It's a phrase for the entire period between Pentecost and the second coming. And it's a long, like it's a long last days. At least from our perspective. Not so much from God's. But from our perspective, 2,000 years, it's a good long time. And guess what? We might be in the last days for another 2,000 years. Or maybe 10. Or maybe 20. I don't know. Try not to predict those things. Jesus said not to. The point is, the Spirit shows up. And that marks a distinctly new period in God's work in the world. The Bible calls it the last days. And it is that period in which the Spirit empowers the church to proclaim the gospel. Like, what are the last days about? The last days are about the advancement of the kingdom of God to occupy the globe. All of it. All of it. You know, and at the beginning of Acts, we're told there's 120 Christians. There's a lot more than that now, aren't there? Millions, millions, billions, perhaps. Say we're doing pretty good for 2,000 years. If you get from 100 to a billion, that's not shabby. Imagine what it'll be like in 10,000 years. Or 20. Or 30 as the Spirit empowers the church to do what? Declare the gospel, proclaim the gospel that the crucified Jesus has been raised and exalted and has sent his church out with the message, the good news, the gospel of his perfect love, which includes the forgiveness of sin, the transformation of our character, and the resurrection of the body. Good news. And we are privileged, brothers and sisters, privileged to preach that gospel. So let's not get distracted. Let's not get distracted by sensationalism. Don't get your theology from the big screen. Get it from the Bible. Don't get your theology from the New York Times bestseller list. Or the radio. Get it from the Bible. So if we are reading Acts and hearing Peter, then we can begin to see that this is the realization 
of something that God has had in the works for a very long time. Like this isn't God kind of shooting, <laughs> shooting from the hip, you know. He's not kind of like, hey, what do I do now? Hey, let's do the spirit thing. No, this is the fulfillment of something that has come through Abraham's family through the Hebrew people. And again, this gives us a sense of what Jesus, like what's the strategy? The eternal strategy in God's mind. And we know that this is God's eternal strategy because when, in a few minutes, when Peter talks about Jesus being handed over, it is, he was handed over according to the plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Like the crucifixion is no surprise to the triune God. It's the project, it's the plan, it's what's happened. And so we've got this story, right, where God comes to Abraham and picks one family, and all the other families feel left out. Like, why did he pick him and not us? And that's how we feel, when, whether we're on like a Little League baseball, dirt lot, sand lot kind of baseball team, and the last person to get picked, which was usually me, right, we know what it feels like to not get picked first. And it feels a little bit offensive, and yet God picks somebody else first. He doesn't pick me first. He picks Israelites, not Americans. And we feel kind of like outsiders all of a sudden. Because the promise didn't come through us. And yet the promise is for us, isn't it? God, his strategy, you can quibble with, this, with him on this if you want. But his plan, his strategy was to pick one family for the sake of all the other families. One nation for the sake of all the other nations. Now again... Peter says more than he understands. Because in a few minutes, as he's wrapping up this quote, he says, all, all the quote from Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now remember, later in Acts, when the gospel goes to the, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, everybody's kind of like, whoa, hang on a second. <laughs> we didn't know the Guatemalans were going to get on in this, and the, you know, the Syrians, and North Americans and Chinese, we thought this was a Jewish thing, Jewish Messiah, Jewish people, and now the Spirit's falling on Romans. But Peter, if he just paid attention to his own sermon, would, should have known this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and this was God's purpose. He comes in through one family, tip of the spear kind of thing, so that he can bless all the families. And we are beneficiaries of that blessing. Thanks be to God. And we're here, friends, as beneficiaries of that blessing, as members of the commonwealth of God in Christ, as members of the body of Christ, as co-heirs with Abraham's children. That's all Bible language. Because the Holy Spirit empowered the church to proclaim the gospel, and they did it. We wouldn't be here if the church in Jerusalem on day one had not embraced the vocation to proclaim the gospel in the power of the Spirit. Like, just let that sink in. Because God didn't come to us first, He went to Abraham. And if they hadn't embraced the vocation, Guess what? No mission. Guess what? No Hope Hole UMC. We're only here because some fishermen in the first century obeyed. 
question then becomes, who needs to be here because you obey God? And who's not because you haven't? I'm tempted to stop right there, but I'm not. I want us to think about how God, uh, how his expectations endow us with legitimate and substantial responsibility. Like this isn't a, you know, the preacher will do the preaching and hopefully some people get saved and they can go to heaven and that'll be swell and it's kind of sad for the folks who go to hell, but you know, they get what's coming, right? There's a lot of places where that's basically what you There's a lot. But what we get here is God picking one person who has to be faithful, and in his faithfulness, other people get blessed and incorporated into the family. And that pattern continues to this very day. And God has been faithful to you, and you've been incorporated into Abraham's family. And the question then, because the Spirit has empowered the church to do this, and the Spirit has empowered you to do this. The question is whether you're walking in that responsibility and embracing that vocation and living in that power. Just because you don't talk about Jesus doesn't mean you haven't been empowered to talk about Jesus. It means you just haven't embraced the power. And the question then becomes, if we're in the family because they were faithful, who else needs to be in the family as a result and consequence of our faithfulness? And when we ask the question like that, we can begin to see how quickly we get distracted by all kinds of ridiculous things. Like take the old color of the carpet debate cliche. Take the old worship wars cliche. Take all the old things that churches fight and split about and put it right next to the who's in the kingdom because of this church question. And you find out how stupid that stuff is very quickly. Very, very First things first. The gospel is the first thing. God's been doing this. He's going to keep doing this. He's building on what he's already done. And it's expanding and it will continue to expand. And it will continue to expand with or without us until the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, says the prophet. That's the that's the end goal. Global glory. The glory of the Lord filling the earth as much as the ocean is wet. That's where this project's going. The question for us is whether or not we're going to embrace the empowerment that the Spirit gives to the people of God indiscriminately. What does Peter say about Jesus? Verse 22. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. Notice how objective that is. In the 21st century, in Western civilization, if you can call it civilization anymore, at least in our neck of the woods, the Western Hemisphere, there is a belief that religion is pure subjectivity. What that means is, I've got mine and you've got yours, and what's, tr what's true for me is true for you, regardless of whether they seem like they contradict. That's what subjective means. My experience is my experience, your experience is your experience. God is who we think he is. And I've got my vision of God, and you've got your vision of God, and just because my vision of God don't mean your isn't like your vision of God doesn't mean you can say my vision of God is wrong. Trouble with that is God... <laughs> does specific things through specific people in specific periods of history, and they are objectively true and real. And if our experience is not conformed to his revelation, our experience is misleading us. And so Peter says, hey, God has worked through Jesus and attested everything he's done. He signed off on the work of Jesus. The mir like, if you want to know what the miracles are about, they are the evidence that what God is doing in Jesus is legit. That's what the signs and what, that's how they function. Hey, Jesus turned water into wine. Hey, Jesus healed a lame man. Hey, Jesus healed a blind man. Hey, Jesus is walking on water. What's that all about? It is evidence, it is testimony from God that he supports and affirms everything Jesus does. And the ultimate affirmation is what? <laughs> Resurrection and exaltation. Like God doesn't exalt people to the throne of heaven if he doesn't affirm what they're doing. <laughs> and so Jesus is the objective, unchanging, standard revelation of God. And every other thing that doesn't conform to that is false religion. That's why we spend so much time talking about Jesus. Because <laughs> we don't want to practice false religion. If you like, what's the word? Sugarcoat sermons? That's a thing, right? At least I hear that it's a thing. People say, you know, sometimes sermons are sugar-coated. Peter didn't know about that, did he? This Jesus, whom you handed over <laughs> to be crucified, sinners, <laughs> God raised him up. And then notice how much of the sermon is focused on the resurrection. And this isn't to belittle the death of Jesus, his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That is true, and it is right, and it is good. But Peter spends way more time talking about the resurrection than he does the crucifixion, doesn't he? Have you noticed that? And that's not the emphasis in American evangelicalism to the same degree. Like, conservative evangelical churches in North America, we talk more about the cross than we do the resurrection in general. I'm not saying we should stop talking about the cross. You know better than that. 
I'm just saying pay attention to the proportion here. Pay attention to the proportion. And remember that without the resurrection, the cross is not good news. If God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, he's dead. <laughs> and I'm going home. I'm going to go back to bed. Get up in a little while watching football. Because what else is there? So Peter spends extensive time talking about the resurrection. He cites Old Testament passages affirming that God was always planning to raise the Messiah from the dead, whether you realize that or not. So he quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, to the place of the dead, or let your Holy One experience corruption. And Peter's like, you thought David was talking about himself, except I can show you where his tomb is. Which means he's dead. He's in Hades. The place of the dead. His body is quite corrupted and decayed after these thousand years. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Messiah. He wasn't talking about his body. He was talking about Jesus' body. And so Peter goes extensively into the Old Testament to substantiate, to demonstrate, to prove that resurrection was anticipated and that it has happened and that it is a crucial element of the gospel. And if we don't talk about it, we're not talking about Jesus truthfully or at least faithfully and accurately. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. So Peter says, fellow Israelites, I say to you confidently that our ancestor David both died and was buried, and that hasn't changed. And the implicit, com, com, the implicit contrast is that we know where David's tomb is, but if we go to the place where Jesus was buried, he's not there. David was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on what? The throne. And now we begin to see how resurrection, kingdom, and exaltation get woven together in the Bible. Like, you don't get resurrection without exaltation. You don't get a raised Messiah without a Messiah who is enthroned at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and rules over all things, and asks God to give him the nations as his inheritance, and he says, yes, you're my son, my beloved, anything you want, it's yours. Like the gospel is so much bigger, and so much stronger, and so much more beautiful than we've ever, than, than most of us. I've been thinking about these things seriously for about 20 years now. Tomorrow, I expect it to be more beautiful. And when I'm 50, I expect to be thinking, man, when I was 41, I had no clue. And when I'm 60 or 80, I expect to say, man, when I was 50 or 55, the beauty was so much more than I realized. Like my view of Jesus was so small back then. Because life, brothers and sisters, is a journey of knowing Him more truly and more deeply and more accurately and more faithfully. And the little gospel we get when we start out, and it's got to start small because, you know, we're babies. 
But just as Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, so too must his people. And that never ends in this life. I'm not sure it ends in eternity, to be honest with you. I don't really expect to get raised from the dead and just know everything there is to know. I kind of expect the new creation to be a place marked by learning and discovery and deepening relationships. That's a little speculative. But it doesn't seem unwarranted. Sounds quite adventurous to me, if I do say so myself. The thing to see, friends, right? When we think about, when we think about, it's easy to say, like, why didn't I get this earlier? And the answer is simply, God is at work. Be thankful that he's doing it now. God is at work. Be thankful he's doing it now. And guess what? Ten years later, he's going to be doing something else. And you're probably going to think, why didn't I get this ten years ago? And the answer is, for a lot of reasons, probably. You weren't paying attention. (laughs) Whatever. You weren't ready. There are things that our future selves will be ready for that our present selves aren't ready for in the same way that you can't give a one-year-old a ribeye. But what we get here is this stunning vision of God in Christ who offers himself for the sins of of the world and who is raised by the faithfulness of God and exalted to the throne of heaven and commissions his church in the power of the Spirit to take the good news of his unfailing love, the good news of his perfect love, the good news of his redeeming love to the nations, to our neighbors, to the nations. And how much time do we spend doing other things? How much time do we spend doing other things? Thinking it's church. So he just moved, like Peter just hammers through this. The Messiah, verse 31, was not abandoned to Hades. His flesh did not experience corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you both see and hear. Right? They're not wasted. They're filled with the Spirit. Something's been poured out. But it's not something you drink. It's a person you experience who fills you, not just for yourself, but so that you can proclaim the gospel to your neighbors and the nations in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And if we're not, we've completely missed Jesus, or mostly, probably completely. First things first. Verse 34, David didn't ascend into heaven. But he did say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let thy entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made Jesus both Lord over all things and Messiah. The anointed one in whom the promises of God to his people 
for the sake of the nations are fulfilled. And again, resurrection, exaltation, and mission get woven together inseparably in the Bible. And that leaves us with some questions, doesn't it? Why has the Spirit come? You know the answer to this one. I've said it about 15 times already. To empower the church to preach the gospel. But what is the gospel? It's very basic. Christ lived. Christ died. Christ was raised. Christ exalted. Four things. Lived, died, raised, exalted. Shapes our life corporately and individually. And it's not simply for us to receive it, because our next question, what does the gospel do? It saves people. It saves us. It saves our neighbors. It saves our children. It saves our relatives. It saves our coworkers, whether we want it to or not. It will. It saves the nations. According to God's purposes. And who is empowered? No one else is raising their hand. <laughs> All of us. All of us. You've heard it. You are now responsible for it. You can't walk out of this room going, I didn't know. You can't walk out of this room going, nobody ever told me that. You've heard it. You are responsible for it. What are we responsible for? We are responsible to embrace the Spirit's gift of power to talk about Jesus indiscriminately. I want the church to bear fruit. I think we want the church to bear fruit. Both in breadth and depth. And we put together, all of us, immense energy into reaching people who don't know Jesus, who've not yet called on the name of the Lord to be saved. And deepening the members of this fellowship. Breadth, depth. We don't want to be a mile wide and an inch deep. We don't want a whole bunch of people who nod their head to Jesus and show up but don't walk with Him. We want as many people as we can walking deeply with the Lord Jesus. Fruitfully. So how do we get it? How do we do it? One way. Talk about Jesus. Indiscriminately.
You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.